0: So, to start us off this morning, I want us to imagine a scenario unfolding. Now, during the summer months, we're busy and active, and for a lot of us, we're going on vacations. We're planning trips. And we spent a lot of time and we've invested money and energy meticulously planning every aspect of our perfect vacation. And in this scenario, we're driving. And if you're like me, when you're driving somewhere, uh, you might be the type of person that likes to plot your route carefully. Perhaps you've examined Google Maps and you've looked ahead for possible delays due to construction so that in all your plans, you've maximized a perfect balance of scenic beauty and efficient mileage that will get you to your destination at the precise time. In other words, you have your plan. And you've set your mind to it. And so the day finally comes, and you pack everything up, and you embark on your journey. But then it begins to rain. And the light rain soon becomes a downpour, and it is not letting up. Now, after some time, you notice a a flashing occur on your GPS unit. And it's a disconcerting icon that's appeared on the screen. And this icon is telling you that the bridge that's just a few miles up ahead has been washed out. Now, there are warnings that are coming in telling you to turn around. And the message is that the bridge that you are approaching, the one you've carefully planned your route through, is washed away by the floodwaters. And if you continue on this route, you're going to take a dive straight off that washed out bridge and plunge to a depth that will mean that you will certainly die. Now, a detour route is showing up on the navigation screen, and this is your only hope now on this journey. So, you have two choices. You either continue to move along your plotted route, ignoring all the warning signs and the messages flashing before you, which is madness, or you can veer off and you can take the detour route. So, here's a question for you How do you respond? Do you believe the message? Do you believe that the detour route, the message is guiding you toward, is the only hope you have of reaching your destination? Or do you continue to rely on your plan? How do you respond? Well, I brought this scenario to our attention this morning to illustrate that just like our response to the bridge being out matters, our response to the gospel matters. Now, over the past four weeks, we've been examining the gospel, the good news at the heart of our faith. And our brother Ryan has been showing us how the Bible presents the gospel. And so far, we've seen that it starts with the sovereign, holy creator God, which is the beginning of the gospel. And then we're presented with the fall of mankind, which is the problem of the gospel. And then our brother led us through that amazing passage in Isaiah 53, showing us a picture of our suffering Lord as the answer of the gospel. So now this week, we're going to be looking at the response of the gospel. And in doing so, we're going to examine how the apostles presented the gospel in a way that calls for a response. Because the gospel is a message that calls for a response. There's simply no getting away around it. A response is necessary. And a correct response is essential to having a correct and full understanding of the gospel. Because if we get our response wrong, all the learning in the world will do you no good. You can understand all the facts about the gospel, but if you do not respond correctly, you're going to drive straight off that bridge. And our response is faith. No other response but faith will do. But what do I mean by faith? Since faith is the answer to such an essential response to the most essential message you'll ever hear, it is crucial that we have a correct understanding of faith. So the question is, do we understand faith? Do we understand exactly what faith is? Now, before we we discuss what faith is, I want to briefly Uh, talk about some misconceptions about faith. Now, if you were to ask some people what faith is, they might say that faith is blindly accepting unproven facts. They say you just accept what someone says and you don't question it. That's faith. Or they might say that faith is simply giving intellectual assent to certain truths about Jesus. Oh, all I have to do is accept that Jesus is the Son of God and I'm saved. Or they might go a little further than that and say that faith is doing good deeds and hoping that that will save you, that you do what you think is right and good in your own eyes and just hope that that's enough to get you into heaven. I think it's safe to say that by and large, our modern popular culture looks at faith and defines it along the same lines as one believing in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy. Oh yeah, they say, that's nice for the kiddos. But that's not reality. Those things have no grounding in truth or in history. But these ideas are false. And if we accept them, we are endangering our eternal souls. So there's some of the misconceptions about faith. And so now that we've talked about what faith is not, let's talk about what faith is. So what is faith? Well, here it is. Faith is is a response to the reality that God acted in history to save fallen, sinful people from judgment, expressed in turning away from reliance on ourselves to reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to repeat that since that's quite an earful to catch in the first time around. Faith is a response to the reality that God acted in history to save fallen sinful people from judgment expressed in turning away from reliance on ourselves to reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith is turning away from trusting in ourselves and turning to trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is grounded in actual events that God accomplished in history through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been going through this series, we've been examining the biblical gospel taught biblically, and in keeping with that, we have to ask, how is it that the apostles presented the gospel? So to answer this question, we're going to examine Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So will you please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there, before we get into examining uh, Peter's sermon, I'd like to take a moment and remind us of the definition of the gospel that we've been working with so far in this series. We've defined the gospel like this The gospel is the good news that our sovereign, holy creator God acted in history to save fallen, sinful people from judgment through their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Now in a few moments we're going to read through Peter's sermon and as we do I want you to keep an eye out for those things that Peter presents and how they relate to our definition of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 2 we have recorded for us the events in the day of Pentecost and this stunning event marks for us the very first biblical sermon after Jesus' ascension into heaven that was delivered by the apostle Peter. Now on the day of pentecost the holy spirit has arrived and in acts 2 verses 4 if you look with me there we read and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance now this was an astonishing event they began to speak to one another in their own native languages and they were truly astonished by this they were hearing in other languages they were, they were both amazed and confused at the same time, and they needed an explanation. And while some were mocking them and calling them drunkards, others were asking a very important question, and we find this in verse 12. They ask, what does this all mean? So Peter, recognizing the opportunity, seizes the moment to address the crowd, and we read this. Read along with me, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter's saying, hold on a moment. These folks aren't drunk. Listen to me. God told us this would happen. We have it recorded in God's historical word. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord come, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is showing them that the things that were promised in the past were actual real events that would come to pass. There would be actual, real, historical events that would occur that would signal his coming and how ultimately God planned to initiate his plan of salvation and by what means. God is acting. He is initiating his sovereign plan of redemption. But now he gets specific now on whom that is. Look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You know this. We saw him, we touched him. He is real and he acted among us. The very things prophesied that he would would do. You were there, you bore witness to this. You know what has occurred. It's not just a tall tale. You actually witnessed it. You were witnesses to his righteous life. Peter's pointing to them about Jesus' righteous life. This Jesus, he continues in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, it all starts with God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's pointing out that this was the plan of God all along. God purposed that this righteous man would be delivered and crucified and raised from the dead, defeating death. Are you picking up how Peter is presenting this? He's showing them that God acted according to his sovereign will and then points them to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then implicates them as the reason for their death, for his death. But let's continue. In verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. There being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses this is extraordinary this is also unmistakable we saw jesus crucified you saw him die he was dead and was buried this is not a mere opinion or a misunderstanding of events this actually happened he was dead and then he was alive this changes everything Peter continues in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. He's showing that Jesus is Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the Messiah. He is both Lord and Christ whom you crucified. His life, death, and resurrection are at the very center of what God promised for our salvation. And he is very intentional about pointing out their active role in his death. He's making, among other points, the point that they can testify themselves that these events are historically true. They took part in it. And it was to their guilt and shame as to why he was crucified. Now when they heard this, it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, this is the $64,000 question, isn't it? What shall we do? Actually, it's priceless. There isn't a monetary value that you can place on something that has eternal ramifications. And our response to the question has eternal ramifications. Peter's presented them with the gospel. He has laid out all the essential information that God acted in history to save fallen man, and sinful people from judgment through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is telling us that this is not something that can be ignored. He is presenting it in a way that calls for a response. And they are yearning to know the answer, asking, What shall we do? They're saying, What is our part in this? How is it that we are to respond? You've shown us what God has done. What do we do? Let's see how Peter answers him. Look at verse 38. We reread. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, the verse that I want to focus in on is verse 38. Here, Peter has given us the essence of how we are to respond. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with repent. What does it mean to repent? When we talk about repent, that's the the turning away from in our definition of faith. So what does it mean? Well, the Greek word that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is using here is a verb metaneo. And metaneo means to think differently afterwards or to reconsider. Or more to the point, to change one's mind. And the way we're using here in our definition, it means to Turn. And this word is used not only to influence one's thinking in one area, but it reflects a change in thinking that relates to one's entire life. Now, the way that metaniyo is being used here in the New Testament, this can be observed in three steps. First, new knowledge has been presented. Next, a true and sorrowful regret over your previous course of action is realized. And last that causes a complete change of action, a turning away from. It's like this. One's mind was thinking this way about something, and then new information comes and a disruption occurs. in one's mind that calls into question or causes one to regret or experience shame for those actions. And that, in turn, moves you to change and to think differently about the way you thought before. Okay, great. But how does that work itself out in the big picture as it relates to the gospel? Well, ever since the garden, fallen man has been under judgment and has turned away from God. We've been following after the dictates of our own hearts. We've been trying to do it our own way. Remember Eve in the garden? Our brother Ryan showed us how Eve saw the fruit and desired it, even though God had expressly forbid it. She wanted to follow her own way, and Adam was right there in lockstep with her. Mankind has been miserable ever since then. We've been moving in a direction directly opposite from God. But what would this have meant to a first century Jew in hearing this from Peter? After all, they would have been fully convinced that they were in total obedience to God and his law. What is it that they were to change their mind about? What is it that they were being asked to turn away from? Well, the first century Jews were heavily influenced by the Pharisees who taught a very destructive and distorted legalism. They held a distorted belief that one can earn their way into heaven. They maintained that strict keeping of the law is what made them accepted before God. And they were deceived into thinking that they had everything in their own power to keep it. And they were relying on that as their righteous standing before God. Now, I want to take us to a couple of passages that I think illustrates exactly where their hope was found. And I think you'll see clearly that they were relying on themselves. So turn with me to the other book authored by Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind us that the gospel of Luke and Acts is is really one volume. It's one complete account that has been split into two parts. So what we're doing is we're going to go back in time in the narrative into the gospel of Luke and examining through the eyes of the eyewitness account the way the Pharisees responded to Jesus when he confronted them about what, what was going on in their hearts where their hope was. Jesus is going to expose where their reliance is. So look with me in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 37. Luke eleven thirty-seven. we read, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. See, they were particularly good at keeping the ritual of things, but they didn't have a heart in loving God. They were particularly good at keeping the small things, but completely ignoring the greater matter of loving God. He says, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God, Jesus tells them. Their heart attitude was all wrong, Jesus told them. The problem is, is that they relied on what they did. They saw their works and their actions as being enough. And they did it only for themselves. They would tithe even more than the law required just to show how righteous they were. But they ignored justice for the poor and the needy and neglected to cultivate a true love for God and his mercy. Because they didn't feel that they needed it they didn't consider themselves broken and needy sinners before god and what they were teaching by their arrogant example was self-reliance for salvation oh we do all the things in the law we keep it perfectly but their heart was not for god but let's look at another example Turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, this is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is our Lord describing perfectly the folly of trust in themselves that they were righteous. This is one of the most stark examples that I found in the gospel. Read with me starting in verse 9. This Pharisee was perfectly comfortable to go up and under the insulting pretense of thanking God, list off all the great things that he'd done to justify himself as being righteous. But I think the most telling statement is where he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. In other words, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really under judgment. That guy is a sinner. And he was right about that. The tax collector was a sinner. But the key difference is that the tax collector had a profound, deep, and honest understanding that he was under judgment and a sinner that needed God's mercy. The Pharisee would have responded to the gospel, I don't need Jesus. I'm not under judgment. When I get before God, I'll be fine with all the good things that I've done. Or he might say it like this. I'm righteous because I didn't do all the bad things like these other people have done. That's one we hear a lot, isn't it? I'm not a sinner. God's not going to judge me. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't do things that were as bad as this guy over here. And they rely on that as being the reason why they should be righteous before God. The tax collector would have collapsed at the foot of the cross and responded with, Save me, Lord Jesus. You are my only hope. Amen to that. Now we don't have temple sacrifices and washing rituals or special special couches that we have to sit on. But I think the danger that we can fall into is much the same as the first century Jews did in thinking that we really don't need Jesus. We agree to certain facts about him and think that's enough. But do we really have a true sense of our sin? Do we really understand that we are fallen sinful people under judgment? who are accountable to a holy, sovereign creator God. And that our hope, our only hope, is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we get too wrapped up in our own works and put too much confidence in the evidences of our faith. That we're really looking at ourselves and asking the question all wrong, like, am I living a moral life like Jesus And not examining our hearts and saying, am I living in total dependence on the righteous life Jesus lived for me? And there's an eternal difference between the two. Our response is to turn away from reliance on ourselves and to turn to reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what it means to repent. Peter is telling the Jews to turn away from their own self-reliance. He's pointing out to them that they themselves witnessed his life, death, and resurrection. And many of them who were there at the day of Pentecost hearing this sermon rejected Jesus based on their own self-righteousness. Remember, Peter says, when he was here, he told you, he pointed out your hypocrisy and explained it to you, but you would have nothing of it. And you believe in a system that puts you at the center of the universe and taught to look to yourselves, your own strength and righteousness to be accepted before God. Therefore, for the love and mercy of God, you must repent and turn to Jesus. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2. We see that Peter calls out two things here and how they should respond. He says, repent... And be baptized. Now, to begin with, I want to be perfectly clear that the act of baptism isn't a necessary requirement for salvation. So the question is why does Peter say this? Why doesn't he just say, repent and believe? Repent and put your trust in Jesus. Well, let me explain why he's saying this way. The important thing to understand about baptism is that it is not the actual act that saves you, but rather it is the heart change attitude toward God that baptism represents. Baptism is a public declaration that one is turning away from reliance on self and turning to put one's complete reliance in Christ. This wasn't some new requirement, some new thing that they must do to be saved. It was an outward public expression of putting their faith in Christ. Now, many of the people that Peter is talking to in this crowd were there in Pilate's court publicly calling for Jesus' crucifixion. They were declaring themselves publicly that they were opposing Jesus as his claim to be their king. They were publicly rejecting him. So now Peter is calling them out publicly to express their faith in Jesus publicly. But baptism also represents the cleansing of sin that faith in Christ represents. That's why Peter links for the forgiveness of sin with baptism. He's not saying by being baptized, your sins are forgiven. Baptism represents a washing that repentance produces in the one who turns away from reliance on oneself to reliance in christ through faith so now that we've established that baptism is not a new command or a new requirement to be saved i want us to look at an example of someone who trusted in themselves and came to fully relying on the life death and resurrection of jesus christ as their only hope turn with me to acts chapter 9 In Acts 9, we are given the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul. And I think Paul's conversion is an excellent example that shows us someone who was relying on their own righteous work and then came to fully rely on the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to examine this in two steps. First, we're going to look at his actual conversion in Acts 9. And then we'll examine how he exposes where his hope is in one of his letters. So look with me in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We read, But Saul, that's the apostle's original name before becoming a Christian, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now where do you think Paul's heart is? What direction is Paul going right now? Paul felt that he was fully righteous in doing good in persecuting the church of God. According to verses 1 and 2, Paul is opposed to everything God is doing in bringing about the salvation of his people. He is breathing threats and murder against God's people. And the path that he's following is according to what he thinks is right in his own eyes. Paul was zealous. And acknowledged basic true facts about God. And he thought he was serving God. He got his letter from the high priest. And it's a high priest of God. Who would think that that's anything but righteous? But in reality, he was serving himself. That is where his heart was focused on. Himself, that's where his hope was in himself. But Let's continue reading. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I want you to really take notice here that our Lord is very specific about who he is. And it's so easy just to pass over this extraordinary detail about how he identifies himself. He says, I am Jesus. I am the historic person who came and taught throughout the land and came to Jerusalem proclaiming the kingdom of God and lived righteously, who was crucified and testimony was given to my resurrection. I'm the one who Peter proclaimed and called for you to repent and turn to in faith. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What an incredible shock it must have been to have this revelation suddenly blasted on you in mid-stride. There was no mistake. This was the very person, the very real historical person, Jesus, who came and lived a righteous, perfect life in our midst, who was despised, Rejected and crucified, and then resurrected by the power of God. And Paul is being called to respond. Jesus continues. Verse 6. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. Paul begins to respond to Jesus. But now I want us to look at a passage in Scripture that details exactly what occurred in Paul's heart. We can see where his hope was before and now we're going to see where his hope is now. Would you please turn to me with Paul's letter to the Philippians? Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, we'll start reading in verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. This is Paul's resume of righteousness before he came to faith in Jesus. This was his confidence. Notice that he even listed a persecutor of the church. The very thing that he was doing on the road to Damascus was one of the things that he used to believe that made him righteous. Let's see where he's putting his confidence when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. Verse 7 Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that i may gain christ paul saying i have abandoned any and all hope in myself all my moralism and good deeds and zeal and my identity at what house i was born into and account all of that as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and be found in him in him is where i have found my hope And he goes on and he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends. It depends on faith. The apostle Paul is clearly showing us that there is nothing righteous in ourselves. We cannot achieve it by simply doing good things and becoming more moral. All of our hope of a righteous standing before God comes from God through faith in Christ. It depends on it. There is no other way. Faith is a response to the reality that God acted in history to save fallen, sinful people from judgment, expressed in the turning away from reliance on ourselves to reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. And whom are you relying on? Are you relying on yourself? Are you asking the question of yourself, am I living a moral life like Jesus? Or are you asking the right question? Am I living in total dependence on the righteous life Jesus lived for me? how are you going to respond? The response to the gospel isn't shape up. It's not stop sinning and get your morals in check and go to church and then you're all good. The correct response is faith and faith alone. Faith in the perfect answer God has provided for us as people that are under his judgment. It's turning away from anything in myself, and trying to earn my way into God's grace. If you do that, you will fail. Only putting your full reliance on Jesus Christ to save you. That is faith. And praise God for that. Praise God that we've been freed from the burden of the law. Praise God that we do not have to do those things prescribed in the law, because if we had to do them perfectly, we would fail. Praise God that we do not have to worry that our good deeds are outbalancing our bad deeds. Jesus' perfect life in obedience is enough. Brothers and sisters, we should make a point in our prayers to constantly thank God for the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ that he gives to us by faith. Because faith in his life, death, and resurrection is Is the only crucial response to the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a merciful, loving God who did not leave us to despair, Lord, but that you acted, Lord, in your sovereignty, in your might. In your eternal power, you purposed it within yourself to redeem a people for your glory. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for the gospel. We praise you, Lord, that he lived that righteous, perfect life for us, Lord. A life that we could never have done. We could have never have lived. Lord, we pray that our hearts would fully understand what it means to repent and to come to Jesus in faith, Lord. Lord, that each and every day that we would remind ourselves of that truth, that we would embed it into our hearts, Lord, that it would be seared into us, and that our joy, our happiness, that it would all stem from that truth, Lord. Lord, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the Bible to give us the testimony of Jesus, to tell us exactly what we need to do and how we should respond. Lord, allow us to respond in faith. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness in all things that you've given to us in him. And we pray in your son's precious name, Jesus. Amen.